starting at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. May this word of the Lord strengthen our soul and unite us and make us bold disciples for Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Joshua. You may be seated. Good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And uh, man, how about our ushers and guest services people working hard today, helping everyone try to find a seat? That's pretty cool. As Joshua said, uh, we really would love for you to uh, RSVP for Easter at easteratredemption.com. Um, really, th- th- this next year, we're doing something different than we had done in the past. So last year, we did four services, and all the elementary kids were in classes. This year, we're doing kids' ministry up just to age five, and so all elementary kids will be in here, and we're doing an extra service. So if you RSVP there, it'll just help us get a feel and help you get a feel for making sure you come at a time when everyone's ready to have you and your guests. So, so So please do that. Um, We're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we have the longest section that I think we're looking at in this series, and so it's going to be fun. You ready? We're going to go through kind of a lot uh, today, but it should be good. And uh, I want to start just kind of reflecting on how some memories that we have are so powerful that as soon as we experience something, it instantly takes us back to somewhere else. You know what I'm talking about? Like uh, just the other day, we were on our way to a softball game for uh, one of our daughters. Our our daughters played soccer, and now uh, one of them's headed into softball. And so we have this music playlist that we just call Pump, right? So we turn on the Pump playlist on the way to the game, and on comes Queen, We Will Rock You, right? And that song comes on, you know, mud on your face, you're a big disgrace, right? And just like, oh man, that is such a great song. But I hear that song and I'm instantly transported back to being seven years old at Mile High Stadium, watching the Broncos about to kick off, right? And I can smell the beer, right? And I can feel the stickiness on my shoes already, right? And the chill in the fall air. And it's just like, I hear that song and I'm instantly taken back. I'll never hear that song and not think of that experience. And I think the same thing is true of the Apostle Paul 
and the experience that we just read about a moment ago. So let me just give you a little bit of an overview of the New Testament. Some of you know this. Uh, some of you, this will be actually really helpful for you as you try to read the Bible, is that the Bible is not just one book written by one author. The Bible really is more like a library of books. It's a collection of books, a collection of documents, a collection of letters. And in the New Testament, this is an overview of the New Testament, you see that there's really kind of three big chunks of the kinds of books and the kinds of writings that are in the New Testament. So there's history, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called the four gospels. Those tell the story of Jesus. Then there's the book of Acts, which is history that tells about what happened in the early church. Um, so that's one category. A second category are what are called Paul's letters or the epistles of Paul. And this is the apostle Paul writing a bunch of different letters to different churches in all of these different places in Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus, etc. And so a lot of the New Testament are Paul's letters, Paul's correspondence to individuals or to churches. And then there's these other letters that are written by other people, by John or Peter or James, uh, different folks like that. And uh, what you'll see there is that Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote obviously the highest number of books, except for Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts. Uh, Paul is second in terms of who wrote the most actual words. Now here's what's interesting. When you read the letters of Paul, something stands out as, as a little more intense than the other letters and the other things you read. And that intensity that you see with Paul is that Paul is constantly confronting religion. He's constantly confronting an approach to the world that says, God will smile at us, God will accept us, God will welcome us if we are good. Paul is constantly going after people who are relying on works or relying on the law. And it's interesting because that's how most of us tend to think. We tend to think, you know, if I, if I do the right things, if I obey, then God will accept me. If, I, if I'm good, if I'm better than most, right, we have the Ten Commandments. We go, oh, I don't keep them perfect, but you should see my neighbor. Like, I'm better than them. Right? And we kind of have that mentality, and Paul is constantly attacking that and saying, no, 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 no. It's not that if we obey, God will accept us. It's we are accepted because of what Christ has done. And when we receive that gift by faith, we're accepted. And then we obey because we want to. And that's a constant theme in the, book, in the books that Paul writes. And the question is, why? Why is that theme so significant in Paul's writings. It's not the only thing he talks about. And the other authors talk about it some, but he talks about it a lot. Why? Well, I wonder if perhaps it's because every time that issue comes up, he thinks about where he was when he first heard that the gospel's not about your works but it's about what God has done on your behalf. And the first time he might have heard that may have been right here in this passage we read. Look at Acts chapter uh, 7, verse 58. It says, They cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, we'll talk about this on Easter, actually, is how the risen Jesus appeared to this man named Saul, this man who'd been very religious, very devout in Judaism, thinking that all of his works and all of the good stuff he could do would earn him a place with God, and how when Jesus appeared to this man named Saul, he changed his whole life and even changed his name to Paul. 
So the Paul who wrote all those books that we just put on the screen, that Paul is the same guy who is standing here approving of the execution of one of Jesus' followers. Who has just given an explanation for why the law and the works of the law and all of the kind of Old Testament traditions by themselves are not enough to bring you to God. And it seems to have such a profound impact on him. And it'll be fun as we explore the story of Saul and Paul in the days and weeks to come. But for now, I just want to make sure we know that, that that's what's going on here. Is, is Stephen is killed because he is telling people you can't be made right with God just on the basis of your works. All right. So the intensity that the church has been facing has been ramping up up to this point. In chapter 4, uh, the people were threatened because they were speaking about Jesus. In uh, chapter 5, they were not just threatened, but they were also beaten. And now here in chapter 7, Stephen isn't just threatened and isn't just beaten, but he's actually killed for his faith. And this passage serves in the book of Acts to explain how the gospel left Jerusalem. Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the gospel would be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth and up to this point it's just really been in Jerusalem and so this passage explains how because of the persecution that came against the church the church scattered and uh, and and spread but in it we see this incredible incredible moment with this faithful man named Stephen we were introduced to him last week he was one of the people that was appointed to serve the widows who were being neglected in the feeding of the bread, and uh, we learn more about him beginning in verse 8 of chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, turn back to chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to work together through this first, uh, this end part of chapter 6, which really does help set the stage for what happens next. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then secretly they instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." This Stephen's a compelling guy. Again, we were introduced to him last week. And in chapter 6, verse 5, when we were first introduced to him, it said this. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in chapter 6, verse 8, it describes Stephen as full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs. Grace and power. Isn't that interesting? Just to pause there for a second. We know a lot of people who have grace. We know other people who have power. But only in the gospel do you have both, right? Some people are just kind of naturally gracious and, you know, but really struggle to be kind of tough and powerful and courageous. Other people like, man, they just can do that all day long. They're real tough. They're real bold, but have a hard time being gracious. 
But Stephen clearly is filled with the Spirit because when you're filled with the Spirit of Christ, you become more and more like Christ. And Christ was described as both a lion and a lamb. And so you see God is at work in his life. You see in verse 10 uh, that they can't withstand the wisdom and the spirit that he's speaking with. So there's something about uh, not just the intellectual thought that he's given, but also the way in which he's handling himself that people challenge him and then go, ah, we can't do anything with this. It says in verse 13, here's the main charge against him, that this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So the accusation about Stephen is, listen, Stephen is constantly telling us that Moses isn't good enough and that the temple isn't important. That's what they're saying. Now, you got to kind of put on your, uh, right, most of us in here are probably not Jewish. Maybe some of you are. So you have to, just for a moment, you know, put on your yarmulke and imagine you're a first century Jew. Everyone with me? Some of you are like, I don't know what a first century Jew does, so that doesn't help me. Okay, here's what a first century Jew would have thought. A first century Jew would have seen Moses like Christians see Jesus, like Muslims would see Muhammad. Right, so, so how would you feel as a Christian if someone came to you and said, you know what, Jesus is fine, but really there's this thing beyond Jesus that's more important. As a Christian, you would go, no, that's blasphemy, that's wrong. Or we know how, how Muslims, so many Muslims respond to, to Muhammad being degraded in their minds in, in the public square, right? It's very angering to them. That's how the Jews would have felt. And the temple was the place where the Jews believed this was where the presence of God was. So if you were in any way saying that the temple didn't matter or that there was something better than Moses, like, hey, you can't say more offensive, more blasphemous things. And that's what they're charging him with. Now, Stephen's going to actually show us that, that he was never saying Moses doesn't matter. And he was never saying that the temple doesn't matter. What he was saying was that Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those things. Jesus is the fulfillment of the laws Moses brought. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. But they don't understand it, so they accuse him. And even though in verse 15, his face is like the face of an angel, right? There's something about his presence that is so obviously captivated by the presence of God. Even though that's the case, they still accuse him. And so in verse one of chapter seven, the high priest said to him, are these things so? Is this right, Stephen? You never stop speaking against Moses? You never stop speaking against the law? Answer the charge, Stephen, and so Stephen does, and he answers the charge in what in chapter 7 is 53 verses. And so what I want to do, uh, just for the sake of uh, just clarity as well as time, is I want to just summarize what Stephen says, okay? And I would encourage you to go back and to read uh, the bulk of chapter 7, make sure that what I'm saying is accurate to what's there. I think you'll find that it is. But I want to just summarize what we read in chapter 7 with Stephen's response, with Stephen's speech. Here's essentially how Stephen's speech goes. He begins talking about Abraham. 
Now, Abraham's the place that any faithful Jew would start because Abraham is the father of Israel. And so Stephen, right off the bat, says, listen, guys, I'm with you. I'm one of Abraham's descendants, just like you are. Abraham's the one that received the promise from God. Abraham was the one that made us a chosen people. Abraham was the one who received the, the, the sign of circumcision, this outward sign that would show the rest of the world that we were united to God. It begins with Abraham. But then what he does is he tells the rest of the story of the Hebrew scriptures. We would call it the Old Testament. But he, he overviews, here's the story of the Old Testament. But as he does it, this is what's so interesting. He isn't just telling the story. He's actually making some really significant points. He's making some arguments about the story and about the role that the Jews, especially the leaders, have played in the story. Here's the first kind of subversive point that he makes after he says, yeah, 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 we're all children of Abraham. Then he says this, the people of Israel rejected God's messengers. And he tells this by telling a number of stories. The first story he tells is the story of Joseph. Joseph is a kind of savior that God raises up to be able to rescue the descendants of Abraham, the children of Jacob, uh, from a famine. And so God raises up Joseph to be able to do this, but the whole reason that Joseph is in the situation he's in, if you read the story in Acts 7, if you read Genesis 37 to 50, the whole reason that Joseph's in that situation is because his brothers, the children of Israel, have rejected him. So what Stephen does is he says, hey, remember Joseph? Remember how Joseph was used by God as this savior? Well, his brothers rejected him. And then next, he goes on to Moses. He says, hey, you love Moses? I love Moses. You know, you love Moses. Yes, we do. We love Moses. How about you? Right? We love Moses. Yes, we do. We love Moses. How about you? Right? And it's like, I love Moses. You love Moses. We all love Moses. Moses is great. And Moses was this savior type figure that God had sent to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. But Stephen says, you didn't embrace him. You rejected him. Look at what he says in Acts chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse uh, 39. This is speaking about Moses. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Here's Stephen's point. Stephen's point is, listen, guys, God sent a savior-type person, Joseph, and your fathers rejected him. God sent another savior type person to rescue people out of slavery, Moses. And your fathers rejected him. So his point throughout this whole talk is the people of Israel are constantly re rejecting the people God is sending. So that's the first subversive point he makes. The second one is this, that the people of Israel are also rejecting proper worship. He says, listen, you think you're on team Moses? All your fathers have rejected Team Moses. You think you're on Team Temple? Listen, the people of Israel have never really embraced the temple the way we should. We've always been people of idolatry, he says, beginning in verse 39 through 43. He says, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's because of him. 
What's, what has become of him? And they made a calf in those days and offered the, a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Then he quotes from uh, the prophets who talk about all the different idols and all the different false gods that the people of Israel have worshiped. Here's what, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, guys, you, you think you're all about the temple, but our whole history as the people of Israel is rejecting God. You say, all oh, the temple's the presence of God. We've never accepted the presence of God. We've always gone after these other little false gods. We've made golden calves. We've worshiped the stars. We've done all these other things. So this is his point. Abraham, yeah, the father of Israel, the people of Israel, they keep rejecting God's messengers. The people of Israel keep rejecting proper worship. And they keep overestimating the temple, he says. He says, listen, God's presence showed up to Abram when he wasn't even in the promised land. God's presence showed up to Moses in a burning bush. That wasn't in a temple. And then God gave a tabernacle and God gave a temple and God gave all these different forms and all of his presence has been there. You're starting to turn the temple, which is a good thing, into an idol. And you're actually forgetting the God who actually dwells there. And he says this, beginning in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses <clears throat> made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So are you tracking with what Stephen's saying? He's saying every time God sends you a savior, you reject him. And even when God promised to be with you in the temple, you turn the, the temple into an idol and you forget that God's everywhere throughout the whole world. And so the, the tension is building as he's saying all this, right? And I realize that a lot of, a lot of us were like, I don't get it. Well, that's because you're not Jewish. Okay, so it is hard to understand. It's hard for us to put ourselves in those shoes, but that's, that's the flow of what's being said. But here's the part that I think you'll get. And here's the part that gets Stephen killed is the next thing he says is, you know how our fathers have done this and done this? You're just like them. You have rejected the savior that God sent, Jesus. You have rejected the God in the temple. You've made an idol out of it. And God actually came in the flesh and you rejected him. You're just like them. Look at what he says beginning in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You are just like them, he says. And it's at this moment that he now can't finish, right? Most commentators that I read all said they believe that Stephen probably had more to say. But at this point, he is cut off because it says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And they attack him and they cast him out of the city and he gets stoned. Some of you are like, oh, he gets stoned. I can relate to that. Not that kind of stoned. All right? This is the kind where people pick up giant rocks and they 
bashed your head in with them. That's what happens to Stephen. They are enraged. They are angry. He says in verse 56 that he sees the heavens open and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. No, 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 we can't hear this. And they kill him. And all the while, this young man named Saul, the fiercest opponent of the church, who will become the biggest champion of the church, is standing by. So what do we, what do, we do with all that? What, what difference does any of that make? Well, there's a, a fascinating parallel between them and us, and especially this line in verse 51. Look again at verse 51, where he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So we need to ask the question, even though we're not first century Jews, even though we go, ah, Moses and the temple, and I don't know about all that, we can relate to this part. We always resist the Holy Spirit. And so I want to ask this question, why? Why do we resist the Holy Spirit? And when I say we, I mean all of us, because all of us resist the Holy Spirit by nature. But, but especially here, we mean we religious people. We who think of ourselves as spiritual, or who think of ourselves as Christians, or who think of ourselves as believers. Why do we resist the Holy Spirit? Because get this, that's who Stephen was talking to. He was talking to the Saul-type people. He was talking to the religious leadership. He was saying, listen, you think you're so close to God because of all your ritual and all the stuff you do for God, but you're not. You're actually resisting God when he comes. So why? Why do we resist the Spirit? Well, he gives a number of reasons in this speech that he gives about why we resist the Spirit. We've got four of them. Here's the first one. First reason we resist the Holy Spirit is because we like thinking we're the good guys, but the gospel tells us we're the bad guys. We like thinking we're the good guys, but the gospel says we're the bad guys. Here's what I mean. In chapter uh, 7, verse 9, uh, Stephen talks about the patriarchs, and they would all go, ooh, I love the patriarchs, except for he says the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. So they go, oh, well, we're like Joseph. And then he talks about Moses, and they go, oh, well, we're like Moses. And, and the whole point that he keeps making is, no, 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 you're not like Joseph, you're not like Moses, you're like the people who opposed them. And we're the same way. We all want to think, well, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. But, but those people, right? And so we divide up and we make accusations and we begin to kind of elevate ourselves on the basis of, well, we're at least not like other people, right? And we do this by, we do this by class, economically. We do this by race. We do this by other social dimensions. We do it by political party. We do it by personal school choices and other parenting decisions. We do it by sports. We do it by morality. We do all sorts of things that we go, well, I'm one of the good guys. Right? We go, hey, at least I'm not one of those Republicans, heartless, just want to take all these people off of health care, got seven years to figure it out and can't do anything? I mean, at least I'm not one of them. Oh, at least I'm not a Democrat. 
Democrats just want to have the government run everything and they think they can make all your decisions for you. At least, at least I'm not like that. Go, well, <laughs> at least I'm not one of those uneducated people. Well, yeah, well, at least I'm not one of those elitists. We go, well, at least I'm not, you know, one of these people who's all, you know, into drug abuse and opioids and alcohol. At least I'm not trying to just medicate my life. Oh, yeah? Well, at least I have compassion on people. I'm not like one of these people that just, if you don't work hard enough, we don't have a place for you. Right? We just do all of this. Well, at least I'm not. Well, at least least I'm not one of those people who sends their kids to public school. I mean, listen, if you want to, if you don't want your kid to be a Roman, don't send them to Caesar. At least I'm not one of them. Right? At least I'm not one of those insulated, bubble, homeschool, Christian school people. I mean, we want our kids to be out there. We want them to be kind of in the culture and be a witness. At least I'm, right? And, and, and you can have views about all these things. But when we develop this sort of attitude that says, well, at least I'm not blank. And that becomes the form of your identity. You go, well, at least I'm not like one of these people who is always injecting race. You always got to play the race card. At least I'm not one of them. Other people go, well, at least I'm woke. At least I understand what's going on in minority communities and have some compassion for it. And I don't just kind of hide behind my privilege. We do it all over the place. At least I'm not a Raiders fan. And that one's true. That one's true. God's a Bronco fan. Look at the sunsets. They're orange and blue. It's not hard to figure out. Jesus told a story like this. Jesus told a story about this exact thing. You can read it in Luke chapter 18. It's a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he says, listen, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, that was the real religious guys. And the other was a tax collector. They were the sinners, the people that were always kind of getting wealth by unrighteous means. He says, the first one, the, the, the Pharisee prayed like this. And it actually says in the text that he prayed to himself. Eyes up, chest puffed. He said, God, and this was what his words were. Thank you that I'm not like other men. But I fast twice a week. I pray. I even tithe of everything I get. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Jesus says the other man went into the temple, but he couldn't even look up. And he just beat his breast, this tax collector. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says it was the second man who went home right with God, not the first. Because listen, it's not that, well, I wear a white hat because I'm one of the good guys and everyone else wears the black hats. No, no, no. There's only one person in a white hat in the scriptures. There's only one good guy. It's Jesus. Everyone else is a bad guy. And if we continue to think, well, I'm one of the good guys. Well, I'm like Joseph. Well, I'm like Moses. Well, I'm one of the good people. Then we're actually resisting the Holy Spirit. 
We are stiff-necked because the gospel comes in and says, hey, the only way you get into a relationship with God is by admitting that you're a sinner, is by admitting that you have need, is by admitting that you need forgiveness, that you need your shame to be washed away, that you need to be made in a right relationship with God. The only way you get in is by admitting you're one of the bad guys. So stop resisting the Holy Spirit. Confess your sin. Admit your sin. Humble yourself. Second reason we resist the Holy Spirit from this passage is we want to rejoice in the work of our hands, but the gospel invites us to receive sheer grace. We want to work, rejoice in the works of our hands. I want to contribute something. I, I want to feel like I earned this. I paid my way. I did my best and I paid my dues. And, and we feel like that. It says this in chapter 7, verse 41. It says, the people of Israel made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. It wasn't enough for them that God had rescued them out of Egypt it wasn't enough for them that God had parted the Red Sea. It wasn't enough for them that God had promised a, a future land flowing with milk and honey. That wasn't enough. I want to contribute to it. I want to participate. I want to feel like I had something to do with it. And so they make a calf that's an idol. It's a false god. And we do the same thing. Do you know anybody who they're really generous with their time, they're really generous with their money, they love to help out, they love to pitch in. If anybody needs anything, they are the first one to show up. And yet when they're in need, they never ask for help. When help is offered, they say, no, 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 I got it, I'm fine. Do you know anyone like that? Some of you are like, um, how did you know that about me? Because I'm like that too. And you know what that is? My wife would go, you're not that eager to help. <laughs> so don't give yourself too much credit. But, but I am like you, a person that goes, I, no, 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 I want to earn it. And that's pride. That's pride. That's saying, I I'm sufficient. And you know what God often does? God often allows people in that situation to be so stripped down by their circumstances to where they have to receive help from other people as a way of showing them as a parable, as an illustration of how much they need God's grace. We want to contribute. We want to have something to do with it. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ comes by sheer grace. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is one of these places, like I mentioned, that he talks about. It's amazing when you think about that this was written by a man who stood over the coats as they killed Stephen. Here's what he said years later. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says, listen, I used to think that I earned favor with God based on my status, based on my knowledge, based on my effort, and now I know that it's only by the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God that I'm saved. I don't contribute to it. It's not by my doing because if it was, I would boast about it. 
And God says, no, 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 no. If you're going to boast, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. So stop resisting the Holy Spirit. Humble yourself. Receive the gift of God's love and grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Trust that what he did is enough for you and stop resisting the Spirit. Third reason we resist the Holy Spirit is we want a smaller God that we can manage. But the gospel requires us to trust a big, uncontrollable God. Think for a moment about how terrifying the Exodus experience would have been for these Jews. Right? Think, think about this. They had experienced all these incredible miracles that God had done uh, where he had, you know, they walked out to the, to the Nile River one morning and instead of being flowing with water, it was flowing with blood. That'd be kind of scary. Anyone else? Like, right, like we're, you know, we see a spider and we're like, ah, right? Like, well, how about if it was teeming with locusts? How about if frogs were just coming up out of everywhere and getting to every nook and cranny and go, oh, frogs are cute. Not when they're in your cereal, <laughs> right? And this is just, these, there's this, all these amazing things that God's doing. And then he says, all right, this is going to be the last one. I'm going to set you free, but here's what you got to do. You know your prized three-year-old lamb? The one that has just become so precious to you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to slit its throat. And I want you to take some of that blood and I want you to smear it on the doorway so that the angel of death will pass over you and not kill the firstborn of your family. Right? And just think. I mean, you have to be, you know, applying that blood and going, is this enough? Let's do a second coat. Right? I mean, that's terrifying. And then you wake up the next day and you hear the cries and you start to smell the stench of human and animal bodies who have been struck down by God. And then you're being chased by an army out of the land and you get to the edge of the water and you're like, I guess we're done. And then God splits the water and he raises it up, it says in the scriptures, as a big wall on either side. And don't you think that'd be terrifying? Right, you're walking through the water, you're like, hurry up, hurry up, that's about to fall. I don't know if it's gonna stand, right? And you try to get through and then you get through and, and all you know is that you're following God but you don't get to see God in a body, you just see this pillar of fire. I mean, are we scared yet? Like, these are the stories we read to our kids, night, night. Like, we're nuts. This is terrifying. Listen, if you had gone through that, wouldn't you want something that felt a little more manageable? A little tamer? And that's what they did. They said, we, you know what? We know God did this, but let's just say that God is this statue. Because that feels like I can manage that. I can get my head around that. I can't really get my head around this pillar of fire, God. We want to manage it. But God is not to be managed. God is not small. God is not controllable. He is big. He is unmanageable. Look at what it says in verse 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? 
God says, yeah, I'm big and I'm mighty and I'm uncontrollable. And here's what the invitation to faith is. Here's what it is. It's God coming to us and saying, I love you and you have no rights. You have no control. You have no power. Trust me. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, God, I have no rights. I haven't earned anything by anything good I've done. I have no rights. God, I have no control. I I don't dictate whether I even wake up tomorrow. I don't sustain my own breathing. You do that through the miracle of holding up my life. And God, I have no power. I cannot overcome on my own the power of death. But you did. You can. And I trust you. That's faith. You say, no, no, I got to control God. I got to keep it safe. I got to make sure I understand how it all works. And if I can't fully explain and fully understand everything, then I can't trust God. Well, you can't trust God. That's true. Because God can't be fully understood. God can't be exhaustively known in that way. I think of the Chronicles of Narnia, that book where uh, these children are starting to learn about Aslan, who's the Christ-like figure, and they're asking Mr. Beaver about it, and little Susan says, he's a lion? Well, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. He's a lion, but he's good. Listen, that's what faith is. Stop resisting the Holy Spirit. Stop trying to box God in. Stop trying to make sure that you can manage every part of God. You can't. Trust him. Lean into him. Depend on him. Here's the fourth reason we resist the Holy Spirit. Is we prefer the measurable comfort of external conformity. But the gospel confronts our hearts. We want to be just righteous enough to sort of look good. This is actually how I became a Christian. I, I, uh, I, was, a, a, a sing, I was an only child of two school teachers, which meant every time I was on break, so were they, <laughs> right? And there was no one else for them to worry about, no one else for them to think about, no one else for them to pay attention to, which had a lot of advantages and had a lot of like, oh my gosh, I'm smothered. And I very quickly developed an ability to be one way around friends and another way around my parents. And I knew how to play the game and I knew how to do just enough stuff to be the good kid. My parents were school teachers. I heard about all the bad kids. I knew how to not be like that. And it was in reading the Gospel of John with a neighbor who had gotten to know me a little bit, but I think God just gave him some insight that I don't think he even knew he had. And he said, listen, Luke, it seems like you kind of externally have your act together, but internally, I don't think you're that interested in following God at all. This is all just a game. Do you know what he was saying? You're resisting the Holy Spirit by wanting just enough of Jesus to look good to people. And not enough to really be changed from the heart. Jesus had strong things to say against this. In Matthew chapter 23, he said this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You're tithing the herbs in your garden, for goodness sakes. That's commitment. 
But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's an image, isn't it? I can't let this little gnat in here. Got to get that gnat out. But you're swallowing a camel? He's saying you're a total hypocrite. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Is that you? You know how to play the game? You know how to just have enough religious talk and enough religious behavior to kind of keep your wife, you know, she, she, she kind of stays off your back. But you're playing games with God. And God looks at you and says, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're resisting me. Give up your pride. Give up your power. Give up your control. Trust me. Let me cleanse you from the inside out. Let me give you life abundantly. Will you receive it? Listen, this is a message for religious people. Because one of the best ways to resist the Holy Spirit is by becoming really good at keeping all the rules. Why do we resist the Holy Spirit? Because we're too proud to admit we're one of the bad guys. We're too proud to receive sheer grace. We're too proud to trust a big, uncontrollable God. And we're too proud to really look at our hearts. We have to repent. We have to turn. We have to stop resisting the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you invite us to know you and to trust you. And Lord, it is not safe. And it is not comfortable. And it is not a guarantee of a good and a happy and a comfortable life in the way that we often think of it. I think of Stephen here who is full of grace and power, full of wisdom in the spirit, full of everything we would admire to be, and you still allowed him to be killed. So God, we don't control you, we don't tame you, we don't box you in, instead we wanna repent and we wanna be humble. We wanna ask you to clean us, to wash us, to fill us with your life. We pray in Christ's name, amen.